Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. I have a special episode today pegged to the 75th anniversary of the signing of the United Nations Charter. This is the founding treaty of the United Nations. It spells out the rules and procedures of today's UN. But perhaps more importantly, it brought to life the idea of collective security and international cooperation through an international organization. On June 26, 1945, after months of negotiations in the city of San Francisco, representatives from 50 countries signed the Charter of the United Nations. In October that year, after the requisite number of countries ratified the Charter, the UN was born. So, to mark the 75th anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter, I am re-releasing a conversation I had with author Stephen Schlesinger, who wrote the definitive book about the 1945 San Francisco Conference. The book is called Act of Creation. Stephen Schlesinger and I recorded this conversation exactly five years ago, when the UN turned 70. And it was an interesting and fun conversation about the history of the UN Charter, which includes some kind of wild scenes and post-war diplomatic intrigue. So I am glad to re-release this episode to you on the 75th anniversary of the UN Charter. And while I have your attention on all things UN 75 related, I want to plug a series I'm currently producing in partnership with the United Nations Association of the United States. And that series commemorates the 75th anniversary of the UN by giving you an inside look into how the UN is marking the occasion. The third and final episode of that series will publish on Monday, June 29th. So look out for that, and you can view previous episodes in that series by going to globaldispatchespodcast.com or just searching the archives of the podcast. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with author Stephen Schlesinger. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, it's an odd story, actually. The alliance leaders of the Second World War, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, were all meeting in Yalta in Russia in February of 1945 to set up the final plans for the conference. The Secretary of State at that time, in the U.S. Secretary of State, was Edward Stettinius. And Roosevelt and he were trying to figure out where the conference should take place. And one morning, while he was at Yalta, Stettinius woke up, having had a dream the night before, 
which he said, I saw the city of San Francisco as the place where we should have the conference because it was kind of equal distance between Asia and Europe and therefore a kind of more central spot for uh, sort of unifying all the nations of the world. And Roosevelt said, okay, let's do San Francisco. That, so, so it came a, to him in, in a dream. That is an odd story. What was the but reputation of San Francisco in the early 1940s? Well, it was primarily a sort of naval place for all the shipping and, and armaments which were going out into the Pacific War. And also it was still considered a, a new city by standards of the history of, of America. And for a lot of different reasons, symbolism of, of San Francisco representing lots of different uh, courses of history and immigrants from all over the world and so on. So from that point of view, he, he did have a point to make. And as it turned out, San Francisco was a terrific place to have the conference. Okay, so let's back up a, a little bit. What's the etymology of the term the United Nations? Like who came up with that, that turn of phrase? Well, there's a lot of thoughts about where he came up in terms of the past, I mean, it's it's been seen in poems, it's been brooded about in terms of different statements made through history, but the way most people represent it in terms of the more modern-day United Nations is that when Churchill was visiting the White House by, back in 1941, in one of, his many, one of his many meetings with FDR, Churchill was actually taking a bath, and Roosevelt suddenly had this terrific idea that with all these countries being part of the alliance against the Nazi and the Japanese, all united in this one purpose, why not call this group the United Nations? And so he barged into the bathroom where Church was taking a bath and said, I have this great idea for what the name of this organization should be, the United Nations. And of course, Churchill taken aback, but said, great, you know, and they, that's what they agreed on. Now, whether this story is true or not, it certainly gives a lot of sense of the enthusiasm that Roosevelt had for the idea of a universal security organization, so much that he was unbridled in his enthusiasm and was willing to risk embarrassing his biggest partner, Winston Churchill, to tell him about it. So it's, a, it's an apocryphal tale, I suppose. There may be some truth to it, but it may not have happened the way people have <laughs> described it. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. But in general, it's probably fair to say that it was in meetings between Roosevelt and Churchill. And Roosevelt is probably the originator himself of the term. Yes. I, 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 as far as I can see in the research that I've done, Roosevelt was the man who came up with the term. Okay, so you know, it's one thing to come up with the term, it's another thing to put the idea of the United Nations into a formal treaty document. In what context did the first drafts of what would later become the United Nations Charter first appear? Well, what happened was that, just to give a little background on this, you know, Roosevelt was the Assistant Secretary of Navy during the Woodrow Wilson administration, and Wilson had proposed the League of Nations uh, when he was at the Versailles peace conference ending the First World War, and it, the League was his concept of a national, uh, international security organization, but when he brought it back to the United States, 
the U.S. Senate turned against it and, and refused to ratify the treaty. But Roosevelt had been a great enthusiast for the League, and when it got buried by the American Congress, he kept in the back of his mind the notion that I'm going to resurrect something like the League because I believe truly that you can't have peace in this world without a security organization. And so when he became president in 1932-33, he started fiddling around with ideas of resurrecting the League in some new clothing. But it wasn't really until the beginning of the Second World War when he realized that the U.S. might get embroiled in, a, in, the, in the battles in Europe, that he secretly instructed the U.S. State Department to start drafting a charter for a new security organization, which, by the way, at that time was not yet named the United Nations. And it was to be based on the League of Nations charter, which had failed you know, 20 years earlier. But the feeling was that the way the new organization would be formed, it would eliminate the weaknesses of the League and create a much stronger security organization that would pass the test in the U.S. Senate and be ratified mm -hmm. by Congress. So the idea so was, was, really, was really, it was, it was focused on probably winning over the Republicans in the Senate at the time more than anything else. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so how did he, he sort of act on that in terms of drafting what would become the U.N. Charter? Well, there were significant differences between the way the U.N. Charter was developed and the way the League of Nations compact or covenant had been uh, uh, drawn up. The biggest difference was that under the U.N. Charter, there would only be five countries would have the veto power. Under the League, all countries that joined the League had the veto power, which meant that a single country in the League could basically, a rogue country could stop any action by the League if it wanted. But if you only had five countries with a veto, it was more likely that the, this security organization would actually act in, in, in pursuance of the goals of stopping aggression. So, that was one big difference. Another big difference was that when the UN Security Council makes a decision, it's automatically binding on all the member states of the United Nations. Whereas in the League, any time the League made a decision, it had no binding effect on, on the membership. Purely voluntary act whether they were going to follow what the League decided or not. So those are two very significant differences between the UN and the, and the League of Nations. And it was one of the reasons why the U.S. Senate was more willing to accept the, the U.N. Charter than it ever was willing to accept the League Charter. So who first put pen to paper to create the earliest draft of the U.N. Charter? Was it the State Department? And who in the State Department started State started Department. drafting it? There was a young man named Leo Pazvolsky, who was a son of Russian immigrants, who really was the power behind the throne in terms of drafting the document. What's his and background? Was, is he Jewish? He was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he um, was somebody who had been in the State Department for many years and, and had risen in, in the ranks because he was considered such a brilliant young man. And uh, he became the person who nobody really knew, but in fact was the author of most of the most important parts of the UN Charter. Fascinating. That is not a name I have ever heard before. No, most people haven't. Um, it's in my book. 
Okay, well, you know, everyone's going to read your book after listening to this interview, I suspect. Um, I know I will. I, I can't believe I haven't read it. It came out in 2005, right? 2003. 2003. So that was just like right before I was getting into covering the UN. But I, I need to go back and read it for sure, um, especially in preparation of, of the San Francisco co- uh, conference. Um, so, you know, the, the, the draft of this charter is, is floating around, I suppose, at places like the Dumbarton Oaks Conference in Washington, D.C. is probably the first place it got an international hearing and, and other countries started to, to see it. Yeah, see, what happened was that Roosevelt had to first convince his two top allies, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin, about this idea of an international security organization. Churchill was kind of reserved about the whole idea. He he would have preferred that there be regional organizations to run different parts of the world rather than one central universal organization. Stalin was all, was openly opposed to the whole idea. He really wanted Great Britain, the Soviet Union, the United States to be the policemen of the world, and he had no interest in including any other nation. So it was incumbent on Roosevelt, if he wanted this uh, entity come to, into being, to convince those two guys to get on board. And so he spent the first two or three years of the Second World War bringing them into various conferences and eventually persuading them to support this idea. Hmm. And from then on, they, they all agreed to have a drafting conference at some uh, place in Washington called Dunbarton's Oaks, which is in a rather splendid state in, 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 in the capital city. And he brought there the three countries as well as China, because Roosevelt regarded China as uh, an emerging power that should be part of any permanent membership of the UN. And so those four powers got together and basically used the State Department draft of a charter on which to make amendments, changes, suggestions, and so on. And then once that was done at Dunbar and Oaks, that document was taken to San Francisco in the spring of 1945 and was used to bring in all the thoughts of the other 50 nations out there who we're going to make the final ratification of the document. And, and how... Changes were made out there. Well, let, let's talk about that. First, though, how was membership decided and who got to attend the San Francisco conference? Uh, membership was really based on whether countries had participated in the alliance against the Nazis and the Japanese. If you were neutral or obviously supported the bad guys, you were not going to be invited to the conference. So admissions was pretty straightforward, but it caused problems once the conference opened because the Latin countries insisted that Argentina be admitted to the conference. Argentina had been a kind of pro-Nazi country in South America, and the Russians vociferously objected to the admission of Argentina because of its blemish in the past. So that became a real sticking point when the conference opened. And eventually, Argentina was admitted over the Russia's, over the Soviet Union's objections. And the question was whether the Soviet Union 
would leave the conference out of disgust for what had hmm. happened. And eventually they didn't. They decided to stay. One of my understandings that in, in sort of deciding membership early on was that the Soviet Union wanted to include a number of its satellite states as founding members, whereas the United States di- disagreed. Is, the, is that right? Yeah. One of the things that came out in Dunbar and Oaks is that the Soviets demanded that all 16 of its constituent states be automatically accorded membership in the UN so that the Soviet Union would go into the organization with 16 committed votes for whatever subject they were concerned about. The U.S., Great Britain, uh, both opposed this idea on the notion that these countries should be constituent constituent countries of the Soviet Union should be monitored and determined on their individual characteristics, not on what the Soviet Union had decided. And that in any case, the United States and Great Britain were not coming in with, you know, a set of votes of dependent countries. The Soviets finally retreated from this position and agreed to three votes instead of 16 mm-hmm. at the um, Yalta Conference. And that was what, three like... Votes for the, the Russia... Ukraine and Belarus. Belarus, okay. So those were the three that um, mm-hmm. were allowed into the conference in um, spring of 1945 I, at San Francisco. I, San Francisco. I mean, so it's interesting. So, you know, in San Francisco, it's still the um, an incipient Cold War rivalry. I mean, it wasn't a Cold War at this point, um, but the incipient or, or the nascent rivalry between the U.S. and Russia seemed to dominate diplomacy at the San Francisco conference. Yeah, I would say that as the Second World War started coming to, the, to an end, the nature of a totalitarian system like Stalin's and a democratic system like the United States, their differences in outlook on the world suddenly came to the surface. They've been buried during the Second World War since they were in this alliance against the Nazis. Um, and that difference started to percolate up into the deliberations at San Francisco. Molotov, who was the foreign minister for the Soviet Union, came into that conference with a certain amount of asperity about what was going on. He was very distrustful of what was happening in the conference, though so he'd been, as a, one of the leaders of the Soviet Union, a partner in all the early deliberations. And so much of the conference was about the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union about certain features of the UN Charter. And had those conflicts not been ironed out, there wouldn't have been a UN today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, so you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, it seems that the defining feature, the defining conflict in the United Nations was not really between, you know, the United States and, and Russia, but really between wealthier developed countries and less wealthy developing countries. Uh, that sort of seems to be in some, a lot of the key UN debates these days, the, a key dividing line on, on a lot of mostly procedural issues about how the UN operates, but also on development issues as well. Was there any indication back in 1945 that this division between the wealthier countries and the less wealthy countries might be such an important feature of diplomacy at the United Nations later on? Interesting question. In fact, the real 
fight at the between the smaller countries or less developed countries and the big powers in 1945 at the San Francisco conference was over the issue of the veto power uh, because only the five countries had the veto power. Those are the sponsoring powers of the UN. Um, and the rest of the membership had no veto power. In a way, that prefigured the divide between developed countries of today and underdeveloped countries of today um, because it was a, basically the most powerful nations on earth versus the poorer ones. It played out over the issue of the veto in 1945, but it recurred in the issue of development and economic aid and uh, distribution of wealth in the ensuing years. So, yeah, I think there was an echo back in, in, was, in the fiscal conference. Was this discomfort with the veto by the majority countries alleviated in some way by devolving some powers and responsibilities to the General Assembly where there's no veto and every country has a vote regardless of its size? Yes, to a certain extent. Um, in a way, the division between the Security Council with its five veto countries and the the General Assembly with everybody having a, a single vote, whether it be a small island nation or a big country like the United States, was reflective of Roosevelt's whole approach to the uh, notion of a new security body, which was that his realism about foreign policy was reflected in the makeup of the Security Council, so that big powers had the big responsibility and authority. And his idealism was reflected in the General Assembly, where every country had a single vote. And to that extent, smaller countries felt at least, okay, we do have a role here, even though it's not the one we want. On the other hand, even with that configuration pleasing the smaller countries, it still upset them that they were being fenced out of the whole veto idea. Speaking about Roosevelt, he died just, what, days before the start of the conference, right? I mean, how did 12 that... 12 days before, yeah. 12 days before the start of the conference in April 1945, Roosevelt, who's, you know, as you said, literally like the brainchild of the United Nations, passes away. Uh, what effect did that have on the conference attendees? A lot of people were totally bewildered about what would happen because nobody knew the man who just took over the presidency, Harry Truman. They had no idea who he really was. This is a man, Truman, who had never gone to college, had been abroad once in his life in Europe during the First World War when he was a soldier. But it turns out that Truman, hidden away, was a great internationalist and, in fact, had always followed faithfully all the differences in the world community and what, how historical forces have a what kind of role they play in determining the fate of nations and so on. This had become something he'd learned on his own. So his first decision as uh, president was to instruct that, the, security, that the, the San Francisco Conference go forward. And he talks about it in his memoirs as one of his proudest decisions. What were the big personalities in the room in San Francisco? Well, there were two remarkable human beings in, from the Republican ranks and from the Democratic ranks who dominated many of the sessions that were held out in San Francisco. The first was Tom Connolly, who was a Texas Democrat, who um, sort of represented the whole Roosevelt view of, of the UN and, and its future. 
And then there was a Republican named Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who had been a one-time isolationist, but in the literally the year before San Francisco had converted to internationalism, and he came on to represent the Republican side of of, of the uh, deliberations. And Roosevelt had deliberately made sure that the eight-man delegation was split equally between four Democrats and four Republicans because he had seen what happened, the mistake Wilson had made in Versailles, where he only sent a basically Democratic delegation with only one or two nominal Republicans. He wanted to make sure the Republican Party felt as invested in the outcome of San Francisco as the Democrats did, because otherwise he knew the treaty would never pass. And eventually the Senate ratified it almost unanimously, right? Overwhelmingly, 89 Mm -hmm. to 3. Something that uh, would be unheard of these days. Unheard of. Frankly, it was a unique moment in in, in world history to have done the U.N., meeting at that particular time. Had it been any earlier or any any later, I don't think the UN would have ever come into being. And uh but Roosevelt took advantage of that particular moment to bring these countries together and, and he was able to do it. If you tried to pass a UN treaty today in the US Senate, there's no question it would be voted down. Oh they tried. Last time they tried was the um disabilities treaty uh, a couple of years ago and that Absolutely. failed miserably. Uh, and embarrassingly so. Um two more two more quick questions. One, what's the day? What's what's June twenty sixth, nineteen forty five like? That is the day that the final end comes to the two month long San Francisco conference and Harry Truman comes out and gives a marvelous speech in which he warns Americans that he knows that the U.S. has refused to ever join an international organization, but he says if we want to have our security assured in the future, we have to be part of this great new U.N. body. And he says we're going to have to give up some of our powers in order to join it. We can't simply go around doing things unilaterally anymore. But in exchange for that, we're going to get much more security in the future and the possibility of ruling out any future world war. And it, it's a, a quite brilliant speech that he gives, but it had to be because he knew he had to persuade the American people mm-hmm. that this was absolutely essential to our future, and he wanted to make sure that the U.S. Senate heard that from from the populace so that they would pass the treaty. I guess these days, international relations scholars call that concept strategic restraint, right? The idea that the, as the victor of, of World War II, you're not just going to run roughshod over anyone, but you can prolong your status as a premier power in the world by submitting to a few rules and regulations. Exactly. And that was the more sophisticated view that eventually the American government finally adopted after many years of refusing to join anything internationally and kind of retreating to its own borders and remaining Mm -hmm. isolationist. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Encourage everyone to read your book. Obviously, they will after hearing this. Great stories. Uh, Just thank you. This This was great. Well, I appreciate you having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Stephen. That was great. And I do recommend his book, uh, which really does bring to life some of the scenes that led to the creation of the United Nations today. So thank you. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye.